Okay, we start again with the salutation to Buddha. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you had a good lunch. And just before, we were in the little library here, and I was glancing a bit anxiously at the Abhidharma books on the book in the bookcase. I was afraid that maybe somebody had taken my story about the termites a little too literally (laughs) and thought that we were serving Abhidhamma books for lunch. (laughs) But they were still still intact on the shelves. Okay, so this morning I covered what I see to to be the process of transition from the teaching of the Nikayas to the Abhidharma. And I dealt with some of the key features from the suttas that seemed to to serve as the seeds out of which the Abhidharma developed. And now today's, or this afternoon's session, I call, I gave it the title, What's Going On in the Abhidharma? And so again, I'm not going to try to you know, go through the whole Abhidharma system and to summarize it in one session, but rather to find out what, are the, what is the project, maybe you call it the overarching vision that underlies the system of the Abhidharma. Why did the Abhidharma develop in this way and what are the striking features in the Abhidhamma. And I lay out this theme in terms of what I call three primary features of the Abhidhamma method. I'm going to explain each one in detail, but just first to take the three main features. One I call, and I'll explain this word later, an ontology of bare factors of existence which is known as the Dhamma theory. I have to, for those of you who are very precise, to apologize, there's a mixture here of the Pali form Dhamma and the Sanskrit form Dharma. I was not certain which form to use because some of these features are common to the different Abhidharma systems, in which case it might seem better to use the Sanskrit form. But then when I'm speaking specifically about the Pali Abhidharma, then the Pali form seems more appropriate. So they got mixed up. Okay, but this ontology is what we call, in quotes, the Dhamma theory. The second primary feature is what is called an attribute matika. And this is a master list of contrasting and complementary qualities 
that is used in order to classify the Dhammas. And then the third is a detailed typology or classification of consciousness that is a way, this typology of consciousness provides a way of mapping the dhammas or the phenomena according to their relationship to the mind. And if those three general statements didn't chase everybody out the door, I feel a, a bit relieved. Okay, now I'm going to take each of these in turn. So the first is what I call an ontology of the bare or basic factors, constituents, elements of experience. And the word ontology, it's a word which is used in philosophy to mean Antos means being, existence, and ology is the study of. So ontology is a philosophy of, <laughs> of being, a philosophical investigation into the nature of the real. Okay, and so what is the ontology of the Dharma theory? Okay, so the ontology involves positing a distinction between what is real and what is apparent, what is truly existent, and what is a conceptual construction based on what is really existent. Um, a distinction between the ultimate elements that are encountered in a purely Again, I'm a little uncomfortable with these words. In a purely phen phenomenological approach to experience, and then the conventional entities that we deal with in ordinary life. Okay, let me explain what this is about. Now, the sort of linchpin of Brahminic philosophy or the philosophy of the in the Brahminic schools against the background of which Buddhism arose, the linchpin for the Brahmin systems was the Atman, the self. And so the great quest for the spiritual seekers, the philosophers, the contemplatives of the Upanishads was to discover at the deepest level of the individual person to discover the innermost, the truest, the most ultimate reality, which they call the Atman, the self, the true self. And then the quest for the ultimate reality underlying the world, the outer world, led to the realization that that ultimate reality, that holy or divine reality is what they call Brahman. And so for the Upanishads, the ultimate realization is the realization that our own innermost self, the Atman, is identical with that permanent, substantial reality, the divine reality underlying the world, which is Brahman. And so this is the 
key discovery of the Upanishads that Atman, the innermost self, is Brahman, the divine reality underlying the world. Now the Buddha sort of knocked out of his system the Atman, the self, and Brahman, the underlying reality behind the world. So for the Buddha, the person, the ultimate nature of the person, the ultimate nature of the world is sunya, empty. So we have the saying, even in the Pali Canon, sunyo loko, sunyo loko, the world is empty. The world is empty of what? Empty of a self, empty of what belongs to self. And so there's no innermost self within the person and no substantial divine real self or no substantial divine permanent reality underlying the world. So what does the Buddha teach? This was the inquiry when Sariputta was first a wandering ascetic seeking the Dhamma when he met one of the Buddhist monks, one of the first Buddhist monks, he asked that monk, what does the Buddha teach? And the monk replied, ye dhamma hetu pabhava te sang hetung tathagato aha yocha te san nirodo evang vadi mahasamano. The great sage, the Buddha teaches the dhammas that originate from a cause and he teaches their cause and he teaches their cessation. That is what the great ascetic, the Buddha, teaches. And so the Buddha, in place of the self and the Brahman, puts dhammas, which are phenomena, the constituents of experience. The dhammas are the types of things that are grouped into the five aggregates, the 12 sense bases, the 18 elements. The dhammas are linked by certain laws of conditionality which give us dependent origination. And so to understand the dhamma, that is the teaching of the Buddha, means that one investigates and understands dhammas, a plural, as the constituents, the elements, the building blocks of experience. Then we see in the suttas that, already in the suttas, that the Buddha uses, call us two styles of discourse, two ways of speaking. Sometimes he'll speak in terms of, or often will speak in terms of persons. Like this person, when a person does good by body, speech, and mind, then he lives happily here and now, and he moves on to a good destination after death. That's just one example of the kind of speech or discourse in terms of persons, individuals, people. But then there's another style of discourse that we come across 
particularly in things like the collection of discourses on the five aggregates, on the sense bases, which are formulated almost entirely in terms of dhammas. Like, I will teach you the things to be fully understood. It catches on slowly. Okay, like here from the aggr- the collection on the five aggregates, the Buddha's teaching, it's a sutta called Anicca, impermanence. Okay, Rupang Anicca, Vedana Anicca, Sanya Anicca, Sankara Anicca, Vinyanang Anicca. So form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional activity is impermanent, consciousness impermanent. So this discourse is given in terms of dhammas. Okay, so now the proponents of the Abhidhamma drawing upon this kind of distinction between two types of discourse posit that what is truly real, what is real, what is true, what is genuinely existent are the Dhammas. Then when we speak about persons, persons are considered They use the term conventional realities, conventional entities, which are sort of mentally constructed on the basis of the dhammas. Um, Mentally constructed, mentally fabricated, abstracted from. And so from the standpoint of the Abhidhamma, the Dhammas are the ultimate existence. These are the basic elements of experience. And then on the basis of these ultimate elements, we construct conceptual realities, which are that of persons, living beings, sentient beings, entities, solid entities. And so the Abhidhamma, I think already this is implicit within the early Abhidhamma, makes this distinction between the basic constituents of experience, which are real, while the persons and things of everyday interactions are considered conceptual constructs put together on the basis of the Dhammas, the ultimate entities. Okay, now one thing that the Abhidhamma does, not only does it use this insight into the nature of the real as being dhammas, but it lays out the dhammas in particular schemes. And I've tried to specify, we say, three purposes that underlie the different conceptual schemes. So I say that these three purposes, one is to open up the experiential field to investigation to arrive at direct knowledge or clear understanding, it's necessary to investigate and to penetrate the nature of experience. And in order to investigate the nature of experience, one has to see how this you know, experience, without any kind of guide, it looks like one solid block. And that's what we grasp upon, that solid block 
of experience, then we build up false conceptions which become the means of tying us down to the passions of lust and hatred, anger, conceit, jealousy, envy, denigration, competition. So all of those defiled emotions arise on the basis of a wrong grasp of the nature of experience. And so to break free from that, to break out from that wrong grasp, one has to investigate the experiential field and see how it actually is a field constituted by a whole multiplicity of factors that are arising and passing away and linked together by very intricate nets of conditionality. Okay, so this is one objective of the Abhidhamma in laying out these schemes, these classes of dhammas. Another objective is, I call this, to expose, that is to expose the causes of bondage and suffering. And then the third purpose is to prescribe, that is the Dharma is called a medicine, and so what is prescribed is the means, the methods, the methods to be cultivated in order to attain liberation. So these are the aids to enlightenment or the wings to awakening. So what the Abhidharma does throughout these pages and pages of seemingly dry and repetitive texts is to collate these factors, to bring them together, to show the correspondences between them and to establish the relationships between them. And so one thing that one finds in the Abhidhamma is that the Abhidhamma will pick up terms that are used in the suttas and then it will show that these terms used in different contexts within the suttas with seemingly different meanings eventually converge or ultimately converge on a single factor which is functioning in different ways or it takes on a somewhat different nuance in different contexts. But what seem to be different factors in the suttas, according to the Abhidhamma method, are shown to reduce to a single factor of experience. And so when we reduce them to the single element of experience, we see that there's actually a much more, we call this a finite, number of basic elements or building blocks of experience which are then labeled and designated in different ways depending upon the different sets in relation to which it's functioning. So I take first a concrete example or an analogy. It's like we have one man who might be a professor of religious studies in let's say University of UCAL Berkeley. So during his normal day-to-day functioning, he's Professor, call him Professor White, but he's also the general secretary for the American Academy of Religion. 
you know, so when he gets the correspondence from relating to the American Academy of Religion, it will be addressed to Professor X.Y. White, General Secretary, American Academy of Religion. But he's also a member of the Lions Club, so when he meets his friends in the Lions Club, you know, they don't call him Professor White, but they'll call him, I called him XY something, that doesn't work, <laughs> unless he's a Xavier. They'll call him B.R. White, Professor B.R. White, Bernard. Okay, so when he, when he comes to the Lions Club meeting, they'll call, call him Barney. Bernie, how are you, Bernie? But then he's also a husband, so when he goes home to his wife, his wife calls him honey or dear, and then he has some children, so his children call him daddy. You know, so he's the same, same man, but at the university, he's Professor White. At the academy, he's secretary, general secretary White. At the Lions Club, he's Bernie. To his wife, he's Honey or Dear. And to his children, he's Daddy. Okay, so with the Abhidharma, we have, taking different terms from the suttas, we have three terms. This is just one example of many. So Vijnana, which is usually translated consciousness, Mano, which is usually translated as mind, and the word chitta, which is also usually translated as mind. You know, this is a bit of a problem with English. We don't have as many words for cognitive functions as exist in Pali. Okay, when we look in the suttas, the three terms are used in different contexts. The word vijnana is used generally in the context of undergoing sensory experience when somebody cognizes a form, one does so with eye consciousness, visual consciousness. So that's chako vijnana. Mano is sometimes used as a faculty, one of the faculties of cognizing related to the eye faculty, ear faculty, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body. Then the sixth one is mano or manindriya, the mind faculty. And then the third term, chitta, is generally used very much like we use the word mind in English as that which is subject to emotions, that which gets sometimes ruffled and disturbed, that which can be calmed down, that which is, we have to train and tame and, and master, that which is liberated. Now when you come to an Abhidharma text like the Dhammasangani, okay, I think this is in the analysis of the first state of wholesome consciousness, the first wholesome chitupada, the first wholesome occasion of consciousness in the Dhammasangani. So what is present on that occasion? It gives a long list of factors, the factors that are present. Amongst them, we have contact, feeling, perception, 
volition, chitta, mind. Then a bunch of other factors are mentioned. Then certain indriyas or faculties are mentioned, amongst them man-indriya, the faculty of mano, of mind. So, so far we have chitta and mano. Then amongst the other factors that's present is well, I don't see Vijnana listed here, but let's see how Manindriya is, ex- first, how is Chitta explained? Okay, so then it goes through each of these factors individually. It says, on that occasion, what is contact, defines it. What is feeling, defines it. What is perception, defines it. What is volition, defines it. Now, comes the question, on that occasion, what is chitta? Now listen to this definition. On that occasion, what, whatever is chitta, okay, it's chitta is being defined in terms of itself, mano, so mano is being used to define chitta, manasang, which is, we could say is mentality, then it uses the word hadayang, which means heart, pandarang, clarity, manayatana, the mind base, manindriya, the mind faculty, vinyana, consciousness, vinyana kanda, the aggregate of consciousness. And so through this definition, which we find repeated again and again throughout the work, we could see that the Abhidhamma is bringing those three words from the suttas together as just three ways of representing one particular factor of experience, which gets designated in different ways because when the Buddha is expounding the teaching, that factor of mind or of knowing or of consciousness can be viewed in different ways, depending on how it's functioning. Okay, so what the Abhidhamma does is to bring, by tying together strings of synonyms for the key types of terms that one comes across in the sutta, it's showing how the entire world of discourse that we find in the suttas is explaining things from the angle of a certain limited number of dhammas which are the basic constituents or components of experience. Within the Abhidhamma system, the aggregate of material form, physical form, is subjected to a much more detailed analysis than one finds in the suttas. In the suttas, when material form is being explained, the classic definition is, what is material form? It's the four great elements and whatever material form there is that arises based on the four great elements. But one finds and that form that is based on the four great elements in the suttas is not analyzed further. Always we just come to the stopping point, form based on the four great elements. But in the Abhidhamma, It takes terms that we meet in the suttas and shows that these terms actually fall under the heading of 
the secondary type of material form, the form based on the four great elements. So what are the types of form based on the four great elements? The way it's enumerated in the Abhidhamma, the faculty of eye, faculty of ear, faculty of the nose, faculty of the taste, faculty of tactile sensation in the body. And then many other elements of form are mentioned, color, sound, odor, taste, sex determination, male or female, life faculty, physical uh, substantial nutriment, and so on. Some of these seem to us today, you know, with our understanding of matter, a little bit strange, but this is the way they were classified. And then the Abhidhamma commentaries pick up on the elements of form that are mentioned in the Abhidhamma Bhitaka, and they show how these components of material form fit together into certain sets, groups, which are called, the word used is kalapas. If any of you have meditated with Paog Soyador, or if you've read any of his works, you see how he emphasizes very much discovering and discerning the kalapas, the groups of material phenomena, you know, that bind together. If we might use a, a modern analogy, we could say that the bare factors of material form are like atoms, and then the kalapas would be like molecules, because the elements of material form don't exist in isolation, but they always bind together, you know, like atoms combining to form molecules. For example, what we call, or what the, the text speak of is the material of the eye, the material form of the eye is actually a combination of 10 material components. There are the four great elements, because that's essential for all matter as the basis. Then there is there are four secondary types of matter: color, odor, taste, and nutritive essence. Sound isn't mentioned because the eye doesn't make a sound. At least most people's eyes don't. <laughs> okay, so we have these eight. Then the eye is animated by the life faculty. And then the tenth factor within the eye molecule is that particular material element which has the function of registering visible light, visible color. So we get the eye molecule consisting of these ten atoms of matter. And similarly for all of the other sense faculties, they have their four elements, color, odor, taste, life faculty, nutritive essence, and then the unique sensory component of that faculty. Whether that the type of matter that hears sounds, the type of matter that can pick up odors, the type of matter that can register tastes, and the type of matter that can pick up tactile sensations. And so we see how matter comes to be treated 
in greater complexity than in the suttas. Okay, now another theme that comes to be elaborated in the Abhidhamma in terms of this opening up the field of experience, what I call opening up the field of experience to investigation, and that is conditionality, the law of conditionality. In the suttas, we might read again and again, we come across a statement like, independence upon the eye and visible form, there arises eye consciousness, visual consciousness. And so, okay, what's independence on, we get a word, paticca. It's the same word, let's use another paper. So, independence upon, independence on, paticca, the eye and visible forms, there arise, there arises eye consciousness. So from the word paticca, related to it etymologically, is the word pacheya, which means a condition. So the eye and visible form are both pachayas for the conditions for the arising of eye consciousness. And in the suttas, that's all that's said. But probably the founders, the formulators of the Abhidhamma then began to investigate the question, how is visible form a condition for consciousness? How is the I a condition for consciousness? Are they conditions in the same way or are they conditions in different ways? And this led in time to an unfolding or development of the whole concept of conditionality until within the Theravada there emerged a scheme of 24 conditions to explain how everything, all of the Dhammas are related to each other. Taking just a few of these to explain how the eye functions as a condition, how forms function as a condition. They function in different ways. When we say that the forms function as a condition for consciousness. Oh, these people on the left? I don't, on my left, you probably can't see. Okay, I'm going to be speaking everything. So, so forms are a condition for consciousness as object condition. So, a category of conditionality is established. One category is called object condition. The I is not an object condition for I consciousness. Because you don't see your own I. If you look in the mirror, you're not really seeing your own I, you're seeing a reflection of the I, so you're seeing a form. So the I becomes a condition for I consciousness Amongst other things, I'll call it a faculty condition. But both of these are a condition for eye consciousness 
in another way which is the same, they are both called, whoops, oh, that's your glasses, okay. There's one type of condition called pre-arisen condition. Venerable Nyanamoli had used the term pre-nascent condition. So if you read the Visuddhimagga, his translation of Visuddhimagga, you come across this rather Latinate word pre-nascent condition, but it means pure jata, arisen beforehand. Because in order for eye consciousness to arise, the form has to be already existing and that unit of the eye has to have arisen. If the eye hasn't arisen and forms haven't arisen, there can't be a visual awareness of that form, that particular form. So they are both pre-arisen condition for consciousness. But then there's a bundle of relationships between, let's say, the four elements between each other and between the secondary types of form. Okay, so now the theorists of the Abhidhamma developed the concept of the four primary elements are related to one another by what is called, if you could translate this, mutuality condition. Like they're all holding hands in a circle, dancing together. Each one is sort of lifting its leg, putting its leg down at the same time. So they are mutuality conditions. Since they're all supporting one another, you can't say the earth element is more fundamental than the water, fire, air element. You can't say the fire element is more fundamental than the others. So they're all sort of locked, their hands are joined, and they're all dancing around in a circle, keeping perfect rhythm with one another. So that's why their mutuality, trying to think of it an example from ordinary life of things that are mutual conditions. Maybe it's two people playing ping pong. (laughs) Each one is a ping pong player at that moment by virtue of the other person. If the other person wasn't on the other side of the net, the other side of the table, you know, you couldn't be a ping pong player just standing with a ping pong ball and a ping pong racket on your own, you need like a partner to ping-pong. Okay, but now there's a relationship between the four elements and the secondary types of matter. It's different. The four elements and the secondary types of matter arise together. They arise simultaneously. But the four elements have a primary role. The other types of matter have a secondary role. You're making a a facial expression like you were shocked by that. Did I say something shocking? (laughs) Okay. So this is what is called, they are co-arisen conditions. They arise together simultaneously but they don't support one another equally. They're not equally you know, balanced. Maybe this is like 
Okay, while the dance is going on, there are musicians, the music starts playing, and then the dancers start dancing. But the dancing depends upon the musicians, but the musicians don't depend upon the dancers. The dancers could stop dancing, and the musicians can play on. But if the musicians stop playing music, of course, the dancers could be moving around, but we wouldn't consider that, or maybe we wouldn't consider that a dance if there was no music. They'd just be like people moving around. Or to take maybe a simpler example, it's like if we have a candle, we have the flame. From the flame, there comes light and there comes heat. The flame is the cause for the... <laughs> The flame is the cause for the heat and the light, but they arise all simultaneously. So we could say that the flame is the flame is a co-arisen condition for the light and the heat. Those are just some examples. But then the other. Those are some examples from everyday life. But then the Abhidhamikas apply this in very extensive ways to all of the factors of existence that they're enumerating in the Abhidhamma texts. And then this evolved into the, what's called the magnum opus, the great work of the Abhidhamma Bhitaka, which is called the Patana. It's the seventh and the last book. So it's this book that enumerates the 24 conditions and then it runs the tw- all the phenomena enumerated within the various outlines of the Abhidhamma. It runs all of those phenomena through the 24 conditions and then you get collection within this one treatise that consists of about seven fat volumes, which it's about um, <laughs> a bit dry reading. <laughs> okay, so I just want to sort of run through again, just very briefly, some of the things done in developing this ontology, the Dharma theory. So we have here, the function is to open up the experiential field to investigation. And the way this is done is by laying out the schemes of the aggregates, sense bases, elements, defining them in great detail, then explaining in greater detail the different classes of consciousness, the different factors that are present in each state of consciousness, then taking the aggregate of material form, breaking it down into some 24, 28 constituents of material form, and then tying all of these factors together by a scheme of conditional relations. And so you don't have to know all of the 24 conditional relations, but it's useful to understand how, for example, in sensory experience, the eye is functioning as a condition, how forms are functioning as a condition, how sounds are a condition, how the ear is a condition. 
So this is helping one understand how states of consciousness arise through objects, sense faculties, and through other mental factors, coexistent mental factors. The exposing the causes of bondage and suffering, that's the second major task, and that is done through defining all of the different classes of defilements that I mentioned this morning. So we have, well, this is actually going to tie in exposing the causes of bondage and suffering, prescribing the means to liberation. This will tie in with the attribute matika. Uh, Let me trade it in those terms. Okay, to expose the causes of bondage, of bondage and suffering, the Dhamma Sangani takes the different groups of defilements that we meet with in the suttas and then traces these defilements to a basic, call it a basic cluster of individual factors that are functioning as defilements in different ways. For example, can I get some help here? I want to go back to something I had this morning. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we have four asavas, four floods, four bonds, five hindrances, seven latent tendencies, ten fetters, three unwholesome roots, the four asavas, does anybody remember what they are? Okay, maybe that's a little difficult one. Okay. The four asavas would be the taint or influx of sensual desire, the influx of craving for existence, the influx of ignorance, the influx of views, wrong views, the four floods, four bonds, defined in the same way, five hindrances. Anybody know the five hindrances? Excuse me? Okay. Let's get the order. I have to get them in the exact order. Okay. Desire, I heard. Yeah. Sensual desire, what's next? Ill will. Next? Thought and torpor. Okay, restlessness and... Wait, restlessness and... No. Yeah, restlessness is actually remorse should be the next one. Yeah. Yeah, worry, it's... Properly, it's remorse or regret. Restlessness and regret. The fifth one is doubt. Okay, so now when we turn to the Dhamma Sangani, we find these factors defined and we see that certain of these factors are defined exactly in the same way. So, okay, we have three unwholesome roots. Loba, dosa, moha, greed, hatred, delusion. Okay, what is greed? 
that which is okay, lust, passion, inclination, compliance, delight, um, delight and lust, the passion of the mind, wish, infatuation, adherence, greed, greediness, sango, the tie, the swamp, agitation, deception, and so on, so on. It goes a long list of terms. Okay, then we come to the five hindrances. Well, actually, I think I chose a bad example. <laughs> Let us take the example, the, the asava of sensuality. So how is the asava of sensuality defined? That which is the desire for sensual pleasures, lust for sensual pleasures, delight in sensual pleasures, craving for sensual pleasures, affection for sensual pleasures, the fever of sensuality, infatuation for sensual pleasures, um, clinging to sensual pleasures. Then how is the hindrance of sensuality, of sensual desire defined? That which is desire for sensual pleasures, lust for sensual pleasures, delight in sensual pleasures, craving for sensual pleasures, and so on. So they're defined in exactly the same way. So in this way, the Abhidhamma will show that, for example, it's just one factor which is the factor of greed towards objects of sensual enjoyment, one factor which is functioning as the asava of sensual desire, the flood of sensual desire, the bond of sensual desire, and the hindrance of sensual desire. Similarly with ill will, where you find hatred mentioned as an unwholesome root, and ill will mentioned as a hindrance, and the latent tendency of aversion, the fetter of ill will, all will be defined in the same way. So that is indicating that in the suttas, when these different terms are being used, they're really pointing to the same particular factor of the mind, but that factor of the mind is being described metaphorically in different ways, perhaps to drive home to the listeners, the binding, the adhesive, the obstructive nature of those mental states. So in this way, we could say that the scheme of the Abhidhamma, this, this ontological scheme, the scheme of actualities, it's laying bare the factors responsible for bondage and suffering by tying them all together to a certain fixed number of mental defilements. And a similar thing is done with the factors that lead to enlightenment, the aids to enlightenment. We have, for example, amongst the 37 aids to enlightenment, we have the Noble Eightfold Path, the factor right mindfulness. We also have the four foundations of mindfulness. We have the faculty of mindfulness. We have the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. If one looks in the Abhidhamma, one finds that they're all defined in basically the same way. So we know that the factors that lead to liberation can be collated into a certain smaller number of beneficial factors. Or to take an example that's not so obvious, 
in the Noble Eightfold Path, we have the factor of right view. Amongst the faculties, we have the faculty of wisdom. Amongst the powers, we have the power of wisdom. Amongst the seven factors of enlightenment, we have the factor of investigation of dharmas. Now, if you look in a work like the Dhamma Sangani, you will find that all of those terms are explained with the same list of synonyms, which indicates that what we call right view and what we call the faculty of wisdom, the power of wisdom, the enlightenment factor of investigation, all of those are basically synonyms. The four four bases of spiritual potency. One is desire. This is desire in a good sense, the desire to, to progress, to reach realization. Energy. Then the third is mind. And the fourth is investigation. So investigation, too, as a base of spiritual potency is defined in the same way as wisdom, the faculty of wisdom, right view. So all of those states converge upon one mental function, the function of wisdom or understanding. And so those are the the qualities that are prescribed in order, the faculties to be prescribed as a way of gaining liberation, or we could say also the faculties to be cultivated and developed to reach awakening. So when one takes this whole scheme of dharmas within the old Abhidharma texts, we see that that the dominant concern here is not just the theoretical system, but it's to lay out the things to be directly understood, the things to be abandoned or eliminated, which are the causes of bondage, and the things to be cultivated, which are the means to liberation. Maybe I'll ask if there's any other questions so far, but I'm still going to go further with the other two aspects. Let me, let me get my glasses on so I can see more clearly. The four ultimate existence? Okay, those are chitta, which is mind, chaitasikas, which are mental factors, the factors that arise in association with mind. Then there is rupa, which are material phenomena. And the fourth is nibbana, the state of final liberation. Any other questions of things that have to be cleared up from what I've presented so far? Yeah, okay, this is a good question, a very important question. And I have to like confess at the outset, I'm not so c- comfortable with that term, ultimate reality, and I think it was a mistake to use that term. But the word that's used in the text... Yeah, maybe it's best to get a new page. Okay, the word, the word that the teachers of the Abhidhamma settled upon is paramatta, which 
is a combination of parama, which means supreme. Now the word atta, as used in the suttas, generally means goal, good, or benefit. And so we meet the word paramatta in the suttas, the Buddha's discourses, and there the word means the supreme goal. And that is Nibbana. But somehow, maybe over the course of several centuries, the word Atta underwent a change of meaning, partly, or at least it acquired other meanings. So it came to mean something like a thing that exists, an existing entity. And so then Parama, Parama, Paramatta came to mean a thing that ultimately exists, that truly exists, that can't be reduced to something else, simpler and more basic than itself. And so the teachers of the Abhidhamma then made a distinction (laughs) between things that exist paramatta, things that exist ultimately in themselves, things that are irreducible, and what they call samuti, things that exist conventionally or through consensus. Samuti comes from the prefix sam plus muti, which suggests together. Uh, I'm sorry, sam is together, muti is considered or thought of. So samuti are things that exist through people thinking together, considering collectively that something exists. But um, a contrast is made that things that are samuti, that exist conventionally, would be, say, persons. Again, we come to a Mr. Professor White or Mr. Jones or Mrs. Smith. They exist as a single entity conventionally, But what is there from the standpoint of actual existence would be a particular combination of five aggregates which are ever-changing. So paramatta doesn't necessarily mean that something is permanently existing. Three of, as you point out, three of the paramattas are impermanent and changing, but they are considered to be things that are not reducible to anything simpler or more basic than themselves. We could say that they are things that are found through a reflective investigation of one's own experience, whereas the self, the person as a solid entity, is not found. It's just a conceptual construct based upon the dhammas. I saw a hand first. Was there... Okay, this gentleman here. So could we say the Abhidhamma is a samuta itself? It is itself. Because it's a condition that we're creating to try to understand experience. Exactly, exactly, yeah. The Abhidhamma itself as a system is samuti, samuti such as conventional truth. So then what's true? (laughs) Well, let's say it's considered to be a conventional truth that mirrors paramatta dhammas, that mirrors ultimate truth or things that are truly existent. 
and, and then I see that, but when you yeah. say that, then it sounds like it's a house of mirrors. It's, it, it keeps coming back to itself. It, as we're going through this through the day, for me, it's a house of mirrors that at some point yeah. collapses back on itself yeah. and to all there is is just experience and give the rest of it up. Okay, two things I'll say about that. But I wanted to, to questions that are intended to clarify what I said rather than to, to debate what I said. <laughs> but I'll try I'm to just answer. being your mirror. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Now I lost the track of my, what I was going to say. I would say, okay, what I would say is that from the standpoint of the Abhidhamma, Abhidhammikas, the Abhidhamma, though it is conventional truth, it mirrors ultimate truth adequately enough to provide a map for walking the path to the realization of the ultimate truth of Nibbana. So it's a little bit like, okay, take the analogy of a map to get from here to Los Angeles. The map itself is not the road that one has to walk, and it's just print on a piece of paper with lines and diagrams and so on. But one uses this map in order to choose the road to take to get to Los Angeles. And so the Abhidhamma is laying out, you could say, the map of the things to be understood, to be abandoned, to be developed in order to reach the goal, which is liberation. And then to say that there's just experience, well, there is experience, but even when we go to the level of the suttas, you can see that the Buddha is distinguishing experience into the different aspects aspect of feeling, perception, volitional activities, consciousness. What I think I don't like about the Abhidhamma, and this is, I have to say, very frankly, I'm not an Abhidhamika in the sense of one who defends and upholds the Abhidhamma standpoint. And I think that it took certain, especially as time goes by when we get to the commentaries, certain bypaths which could lead astray from the path to Los Angeles. And that is the conception that seems to emerge largely through this idea of ultimate realities, that things like chitta is one thing, getting associated with feeling is something else, perception is something else, volition is something else. And then you get this almost atomistic conception of reality, which is something I'm not so comfortable with. But what I would say is that in actuality, there is experience and different aspects of experience. And perhaps what the Buddha originally intended was just to point out these different aspects of experience. But then, perhaps through seizing too strongly upon words and then taking words to be too seriously as literal truth, then one gets a conception of feeling as one thing, perception as one thing. Volition is one thing, consciousness is one thing. But experience is always like a unified whole with different fibers running through it. Any questions of, of things that need clarification? I, I, I can hardly ask this. The types of consciousness. Yeah. Are there. 
Are they? I'm coming. I'm coming to that. That's sort of jumping the gun. Okay. So let's go on then. Oh, I see. We're supposed to get a break. Yeah. Okay. This is a good time for a break. Okay. Ten minutes. And if they need a break, what you can imagine what I need. (laughs) 